today I'm joined in the reading corner by Sarah Ardizoni, who's a literary translator, twice winner of the Marsh Award for Eye of the Wolf by Daniel Pennack and Toby Alone by Timothée von Bell, and also the Scott Moncrief Prize for Just Like Tomorrow by Faiza Gen. Sarah joins me today to help unravel the alchemy that is literary translation. I'm so delighted that you're here with me today. It's fantastic to be with you, Nikki. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And uh, and let's see what we can do about unravelling alchemy, shall we? Yeah, indeed. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to explore is the fact that you are a very well-established and respected translator. I wondered now at what point you become involved in your translation projects. I'm guessing that they're not just commissions, but you quite possibly get involved in the very early stages. That's right. So I think as you become a bit more established in your career, um, you perhaps earn the right and the trust to become more proactive about the kind of projects that you want to be involved in. So when I was starting out, it was very much commissions, very much what the publishers wanted and uh, finding where the synergy lay between what I had to offer, what kind of writers were out there and and how that would meet the publisher's requirements. Um, These days, partly there's the fact that because I've been translating a while, I have writers that I really love. It's passion projects for me. And so um, I want to continue in that relationship and I want to continue following following their development and, and finding out how I, as the translator, develop in response to their growing writing. So whether that's Danielle Pennack, Faiz again, uh, Timothée de Fonbelle, you mentioned uh, Toby Alone. Uh, I've translated his Van Gogh books, which are my standout favourites of his. And I co-translated the book of Pearl. So that co-translation was a shift of energy. I was working with Sam Gordon on that and we were being each other's editor in a sense. And it would get to the point where the writing we were trying to achieve was so merged that we could no longer distinguish who had done the very first draft. So again, these sort of long-term relationships, Um, but also looking to constantly promote underheard voices, forms, whether it's graphic novels that might be underrepresented in this country. And we had a wonderful experience where Baru, who is an illustrator, artist, writer, who I've worked with a lot, uh, had created a graphic novel together with a writer called Bessera. And that novel was called Alpha. And it was about a migrant traveling from Abidjan, capital of Ivory Coast, to the Gare du Nord in Paris. And it was a very important story to tell. So what we did was we created uh, an event around it at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And that event was called the Spectacular Translation Machine. And that model was devised by myself and the great translator, Daniel Hahn, who's now an OBE for his services to translated literature. And we worked together with the London Literature Festival at Southbank Centre and thought, well, what would it be to create an interactive public event that just got people thinking about what it is that we do? 
when we translate? Mm-hmm. What are we weighing up? What makes a voice come alive in a new language? Mm-hmm. How do you tell exactly the same story in completely different words for a brand new context and a brand new readership? Mm-hmm. And in this instance, we were translating a diary which Baru had found. It was the diary of a First World War soldier and it had incredibly evocative pictures that Baru had created. And we displayed it like an art gallery. And in the first instance, we were asking the public to come in for free and engage with the pictures and find the picture that spoke to them. And then they would be given the bit of text that went with it. And then they would set about translating it. But what was remarkable was that this entire book across two weekends wasn't just translated, it was translated multiple times. Mostly they were translated into English, but not always. And it was a sort of blessing because The amazing gift of translation is that it takes a lot of the worry off your shoulders. The characters exist and the plot exists. So the hardest stuff has been done for you. And yet this huge creative challenge remains, which is how do you bring that book alive again? How do you make that voice really coherent? How do you win yourself that sort of sought after accolade of, it doesn't sound translated at all. It feels like it's fresh off the page for the first time. So we found with that spectacular translation machine that it really worked as a model and it just shone a light on this process and invited people to sit with it a bit and try stuff out. And we did that again in Edinburgh with Alpha. So I'm always interested in not just how do you get these books to a new readership that could not otherwise access it, but also thinking about once it is out there, what can we still keep doing to engage new audiences and and, and get the word out? I mean, there are so many books that are written and published in English, but not all books can be translated into English. And so I wonder whether we do need considerations as to what are the most important books to translate? Is it because they're going to somehow support the diaspora of people that we might have in the UK and and make connections with them? Is it because they're politically and socially interesting? Is it just because they're the best sellers in their own country? (laughs) Or are they the prize winners? You know, what should we be thinking about when we take a book for translation? So I think it's all of those things sometimes, although with the caveat that because a book wins a prize in one context, it that doesn't always translate. And I think that you're going to come across books that have a universal quality. So if we take something like Toby Alone by Timothée de Fontbelle, um, there isn't a lot in there that specifically tells you it's coming out of France. So you have something that is immediately translatable because there aren't any obvious barriers that you're going to have to explain. But I think in a sense, you have to have your eyes wide open and be judging each book on its own merits and what it has to offer, because otherwise it can become very overwhelming, you know, to expect a book to be absolutely representative of a culture or a specific people within that culture. That's a real burden in its own right. And at the same time, I think that 
it can be quite liberating to have books that are tackling themes very profoundly, but in a way that might not be entirely comfortable in their own context, but with a little bit of difference and distance and in a new context, we might actually be able to view and tease out those issues more clearly. So I'm working quite a lot at the moment around the fact that 2022 marks 60 years of Algerian independence from France. And there are very big themes and traumatic moments in colonial history that have been under-recognised and under-interrogated in terms of the French-Algerian story and which are only really being examined in a more transparent way now. So on the one hand, those themes are very particular to the colonial French-Algerian relationship and the presence of France in North Africa since the 1830s. And on the other hand, there's so much overlap with the scandal that we've seen with the Windrush story, um, the experiences of diaspora peoples, whether from the Caribbean or from West Africa, from countries previously colonised by the United Kingdom, and, and what the individual pain and trauma has entailed. And I know this because Faiza and I, Faiza being French-Algerian, have done a lot of workshops in this country and uh, we've remained friends with someone who was a librarian and is of Caribbean heritage. And he has been one of my early readers of the translation of Discretion. And he really wanted to read it and he almost couldn't bring himself to because it touches on so many of the themes and issues and silences and inherited trauma that have afflicted his family and actually, it was a very positive experience for him because the universality in those common themes, possibly, and I can only conjecture here, possibly enabled him to examine some of those issues in a way that for him felt lighter and at a slight remove. And I think that translation kind of allows us to view things slightly at an angle and and sometimes that can be very freeing um fascinating i mean it's already going to be evident to people listening to this podcast that translation is not just about word by word on the page and you actually have always been somebody that's done quite a lot of research in order to translate your books i remember you talking to me about the incredible work that you'd done around dialogue when you were translating the Golem books, for instance. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and why research is so crucial. I think the research for me really kind of comes alive when it's to do with voice and orality and how we speak and how we're going to find some kind of authentic equivalent there. I'm not a history geek. I'm not a research. Don't, don't rely on me for all sorts of factual research because you'd be shot. But what I will do is go the extra mile in terms of the orality of something. So I come from a theatre background and I am fascinated in dialogue and I'm fascinated in how 
we capture on the page the cadences and the modes of speaking that we have. So I got a grant from the French Book Office to spend time in Marseille, which has an incredibly diverse community, but particularly uh, Mediterranean and North Africa, specifically Moroccan and Algerian, dealing with essentially multicultural slang or colloquial language. And, and it put me on a real journey. Um, and when I came back to the UK from Marseille, I started collaborating with Live magazine, which was a magazine by and for young peeps. So it was 12 to 21 year olds in Lambeth, Lewisham and Southwark. And there were all sorts of young people working on that magazine from all sorts of heritages and with all sorts of language sets. And one of the things they did was have a rolling slang dictionary. And they were so articulate about how the slang changed, what the nuances were, what the influences were. And it really struck me that they were brilliant linguists and they really had their fingers on the pulse in terms of register. And they knew which register to flip into at which moment when you need to be more formal, when it's okay uh, to go to, to flip to a different register that's for your peers and so on. Um, so they were super eloquent about that. But the thing that stuck with me most of all was the way that some of the words they were talking about were, if you like, recycled words. They were being quite kind of vintage and quite economical with the language sometimes. and. I was shifting at this time from translating Golem and moving towards translating Faiz again. And that was all about orality. And I was doing that in tandem with these slangsters, as they like to call themselves. And Faiza and I actually got a bilingual, bicultural editor of the magazine called Cleo Soazandri on board to keep advising us. And I think the big thing for me was finding a way to collaborate because Translation is always writing with four hands, right? The writer and the translator. And then in this case, if you're talking about voices that are really rooted in lived experience and really rooted in a, in a place, then those people must be part of the conversation as well. And my job at some level is, is to scribe and transcribe, but not to impose. It's to sort of give the space for that. It's never, as I say, a photocopy of the exact language. It's inflected. It's inflected with the words and the colour and the texture and the rhythms. You're creating this thing on the page that captures it, but doesn't trap it and doesn't give you just a, a photocopy of it. I want to talk about something that is taking us in a different tack, away from dialogue for a moment to the translation of a literary text. And Saving Celeste is the most recent one that you have with, with Walker, I think we ought to perhaps tell listeners a little bit about Saving Celeste, what it's about. So Saving Celeste is a novella and it's a sort of dystopian world of high consumerism, horrific pollution, a very segregated society in terms of haves and have nots and an increasingly inhuman existence. And our lead character, whose name we never discover, is a boy whose mum has a super high powered job and she has no time for him. He rarely sees her. And her secretary uh, does the online order for shopping once a week and this arrives. 
And he lives in a world of sort of glass and steel and uh, shopping malls and lifts and walkways and uh, traffic buzzing everywhere. And into this world erupts a girl called Celeste, who turns his world upside down, appears in his classroom. He has an instant connection with her and then she vanishes and he goes on a journey to find out where she's disappeared to. And when he tracks her down, he discovers that she's very sick and that she has these strange marks that are appearing on her skin, these sort of stains um, that are growing and that remind him of something, but he can't quite tell what. But he has this urgent sense that he has to put in place the measures to get her better. And as he embarks on this adventure, he and she understand that in order to get her better, there's a much bigger challenge at hand. Which brings me to my first question, and that's about the title of the book, because it's not a direct translation from the French, is it? You've actually put a verb into the title. Tell us a little bit about the thinking uh, around the title. So the title in French is called Celeste, My Planet. Celeste, Ma Planète. And I think that what we touch on perhaps in this shift of titles is, is the action that we're looking for in the English. And Timothée is an incredibly dramatic, incredibly fast-paced writer. And you're always on a knife edge. And each chapter always leaves you in the lurch. And you sort of have to read it in a rush because it's unbearable not to know what happens next. So in a sense, with Saving Celeste, we're kind of emphasising that drama, um, which perhaps in France, I mean, he's better known in France, perhaps people can automatically get that sense of knowing that Timothée will deliver action. Whereas here we've put it in the title. Something that we arrived on early on and we felt very comfortable with. Mm. But interestingly, both the title and the very end of the book are very, very slightly different. So in the French, the hunter, the trapper who's arrived is asked by Celeste how the planet is doing. And he says, better. She's doing much better. This book was written a little while ago in France, and it's something that, that we're bringing out in the UK now. And I think that we have an extraordinary moment with Greta Thunberg and with uh, so much eco-awareness amongst young people. But equally, there's a lot of pessimism. So in English, we hand the answer to that question, how is the planet doing? We hand it back to the reader. So we don't give a final answer. So that's something that we did have detailed discussions with Timothée about. And he does like to end on a very clear ending, um, but he could see our reasoning and he was happy that we were still signaling a very strong desire for a positive takeaway. So interesting. I wanted to, you know, pay testimony to your undoubted skill and, and really just to exemplify what an art translation is. So there's a little bit here. I've just taken a small bit of text from fairly early on in Saving Celeste. And it reads, 
At break, I scoured the school roof terrace for Celeste. I didn't realise she'd stayed behind in class to fill out a form. Leaning over the glass parapet, I kept saying to myself, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. I was so scared of falling in love. That struck me that, you know, there's another point here, and that is about rhythm. And you've talked about the rhythm of dialogue, Mm. but texts have rhythm, you know, the narrative has a rhythm too. And I wondered whether there were any challenges specifically in translating from French to English that you have to think about in terms of getting the rhythm right. So rhythm is something that is a really interesting challenge with Timothée because, as I've mentioned, he is incredibly dramatic and pacey and uh, you you need to get caught in that almost breathless rhythm of, of just euphoria and rushing along with it and the excitement of finding out what happens next. Now, Timothée often creates that through staccato and so he'll have incredibly short sentences and you'll have full stops cropping up all the time. And in the French, you don't trip on them. You just, they're they're like these kind of tiny little pebbles and you just hop over and you're on to the next thing. And in English, you risk setting up barriers. And so I can find myself needing to collide sentences together. So where there's a full top in the French, there might need to be a comma in the English. And you just have to play around. And the first rule of translation is read out loud. And you just have to find how you're going to capture that pace and that flow. And the punctuation can be absolutely key in that. And sometimes even the alignment of paragraphs, sometimes you might have more standalone lines in the French and you might again need to collide them together into a paragraph in the English. But it's that business of if you're trying to replicate an experience, um, then sometimes quite dramatic intervention is required to make that happen. And other times it's the reverse. It's the confidence of believing that it will translate across and that you don't want to normalise it. You don't want to change it in a way that makes it more English or something. And and you want it to breathe as it is. And that takes us back to what we were talking about earlier, Nikki, which is that books in translation have so many roles to play and and so many different types of readerships to read uh, and so many different types of publishers to fly the flag of translation with. So you're never going to have, you know, a monolithic answer. Mm -hmm. And that's the joy of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, but with... um, Timothée, he's a great dialogue writer. He also has a background in theatre. He's also very excited by the speech patterns and by bringing the characters alive through their modes of talking. But he's also a brilliant narrator himself. And he has this very fast paced style that you, you find yourself just trying everything in order in order to replicate that speed and it's interesting because uh there was recently a whole um magazine uh, children's literary literature magazine dedicated to him in France and I was asked to contribute a piece about the experience of translating him as was his German translator and we were both talking about rhythm and we were both talking about the fact that the language is deceptively simple you know, you don't have to do huge amounts of looking stuff up in dictionaries or excavating in order to understand what's meant. And yet, 
it's so masterful the way that he pulls that off as a storyteller so you have to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until you get something that really flows and really convinces you as a reader in the English and just before our podcast I was digging out my various drafts of Saving Celeste you know and it's not a long novella it's how many pages I'm just looking at it here sort of 114 pages um, and yet I'll put a book like this through eight drafts. So I often think that in terms of my personal skill set, I'm a reasonable translator and I'm an excellent editor of my translations. And I think that's where I kind of try to bring the clout. So that layering, that process, that keeping on rinsing it and rinsing it, and that's a painstaking process and, and one that takes a lot of layers and a lot of time. Absolutely fascinating. I can tell you I've got through a quarter of my questions that I had for you, <laughs> which I think we're just going to have to save for the next book. As always, it's been illuminating and you've really helped us, as I say, go to the next step in terms of our understanding of what happens with this wonderful process of translation. So thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a joy talking to you, Nikki, and I would certainly recommend any listeners to this podcast also to check out the World Kidlit blog, because that's a great uh, resource site uh, for different books in translation for young people from around the world. So thank you so much for making the time today. And I'm, I'm very sorry that we didn't get to answer those other questions, but I'll look forward to that on another occasion. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.